Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. What you hear in the next hour could very well save your life. Now, here's your host, Sharon Kleina. I want to invite you to listen to The Power of Water, and what does that mean? I'm Sharon Kleina. Power of water on our planet Earth. Can you imagine the influence that it has with the rest of the solar system? Today, we're going to have two parts to our show. We have Joel Thomas who is in Appleton, New York. He's an author and naturalist, wildlife rehabilitator. He teaches people about our native wildlife and helping them uh, solve some wildlife-related problems. And are, this is going to be fascinating because I, I really um, have understood that, what that means. The book Creative Comforts, Wildlife Stories and Solutions is his uh, uh, book, and we will learn. Our second guest is going to be Dwayne Cecil. Ph.D., who's with the U.S. Geological Survey. We've had Dwayne on before. He's formerly with NASA for years. Uh, Dwayne is involved right now with a very exciting new movement with the U.S. Geological Survey on water issues. I'd asked Dwayne in our last show, well, now that we're not going to go out in the shuttle for for a while and we have just one more trip, what are we going to do to look back at Earth and study he said, guess what? We have been studying all these years. We've been studying Earth from out in space. But we've decided we're going to start studying water as a primary. He knew how I would react to this because water has been my study for over 30 years. The planet Earth is so important, so vital to life for eternity. Its effect on the rest of the solar system is so important on how we live here. Because of dehydration, water, water in the air, the fluid you don't see called humidity, the fluid you don't see in your homes, the fluid you don't really see yet in your own body. You're made up of a river. You are water. And we must realize that water on the planet, our life, life living, our individual species, the human species, our animals, everything that is out there depends upon water. And without it, there is no life, and the diseases begin to happen. I call them dehydrated diseases. So we'll learn together and with each of our shows. We're going to learn more about how we're going to live with social media part of my show. I want to start emphasizing we're going to learn in our, uh, where I'm with my company, how can we get involved with our audience out there in the world with a social media approach to get you educated about how important water is the nature of your symptoms are not medical symptoms. They are called nature's symptoms. And then we're going to get you thinking about how important it is for you to drink water, 
how important it is for you to study yourself and enjoy the person you are, the gift you've been given. But then also, how can we all join in on a mission with Earth and protect the waters so there is an eternity and Earth gets better and better at what they're doing? You know, we could improve. Wouldn't that be fascinating? But we want to learn to live with Earth because Earth's not going to learn to live with us. Let's enjoy this show and get involved with me with my Facebook and my Twitters and we're going to learn a lot. So go into Sharon Kleina, K-L-E-Y-N-E, look me up, and let's join together on what we can do to make a difference. And Earth's whispering, you know, you can make a difference for eternity. You will be immortal. Let's listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist. And the only method of moisturizing the surface of that eye that is so important to your health with just a mist supplementing the water at the surface with not an eye drop, not with saline, no longer saline, with Nature's Tears Eye Mist. We'll listen to our sponsor and we'll be back with Joel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Joel, are you with us? I am here. Greetings. Well, greetings to you back there. Are you cold? Oh, it's a little chilly up here near Lake Ontario. If everybody's watching the news, they know. Now, how close is Appleton, New York, to Canada? Uh, we're probably 45 minutes to an hour away from the border. Okay. I'm just east okay. of Niagara Falls, almost right on the shore of Lake Ontario. Okay. So you're, you're staying warm indoors. <laughs> I am staying warm indoors, you bet. Now, you are very much involved with uh, research and understanding as a naturalist, wildlife. Now, tell us, how did, you, how did that start for you? Well, I, you know, it, st- it starts way back as a kid. I was one of those kids that grew up, uh, you know, a country kid. You know, and 40-odd years ago, there wasn't a whole lot to do. Like, the, you know, there wasn't a whole lot pulling us in different directions. Like today's kids, they're pulled in a lot of different directions. But, you know, we grew up outdoors, and we, uh, we entertained ourselves. And uh, I had a childhood involved with swimming in the pond and flipping over boards and just being curious about the natural world, and so that's the way I, I grew that, up. That's too, how Joel. it began. 
Yes, I, yeah, I'm uh, I'm 69 years old, and I will tell you, uh, way back in time when I look at my life, uh, a lot of people when they look at me, Joel, they'll think she loves nature because. I don't look like I do because I'm <laughs> dressed different. I wear three-piece suits and doing what I do, but I also have my gypsy side here. But sure. back to my life. Have you ever been to Oregon? I've never been to Oregon. I've been to the West Coast, but I've, I've never been into the Pacific Northwest. Well, I'm a born Oregonian. i visit one day. I've done personal appearances all over this country with what I do and other things I do besides the show. But they go, you're from Oregon? <laughs> Again, the mountains and the trees and the streams and the grapevines. And I swam through the edges of rapids and saw the wildlife and climbed the mountains and always said, Joel, I'm going to grow up and live in a cabin. So we live in, I'm in Grants Pass, Oregon, Mm -hmm. in the Rogue River. And our home, our place, our campus here for the research center is on the banks of the Rogue River. And uh, so when you just described what you did, I look back at my passion, and I've been studying nature now and water and more and the technology of the future for well over 30 years. But now tell me, um, as a naturalist, I'm glad you chose the wildlife because that is something that is so important. And you decided to go into wildlife study, though. Yeah, and, you know, again, you know, I started out as one of those kids, and I had patient parents. I was bringing animals home. And uh, it just it just grew from there. I had a lot of jobs uh, as I got older, but I never really forgot about how much I love the outdoors. I'm also a hunter, an angler, a hiker. Everything uh, about the outdoors always uh, interested me. And so I went back to school later in life and got a degree in veterinary science, became a licensed uh, veterinary technician. From there, I landed, um, you know, out of private practice working for a large humane society uh, out of Buffalo, New York. And then I went to work in their wildlife department, became a licensed wildlife rehabilitator. Wow. And so that's really how the journey started. Along with treating injured wildlife, I began to, there's a need here well, where before people you go are always far, calling us say- with questions about wildlife. It's amazing how many people do not know anything about the natural world that's right outside their door. It's, yeah, it's now I'm going to interrupt once in a while because when a person says something, I like to grab what they just said real quickly. Sure. What is a wildlife rehabilitator? Uh, a wildlife rehabilitator is someone that is usually licensed within their state, okay. and they are licensed to possess and treat injured wildlife, oh. sick, injured, or orphaned wildlife, wildlife that succumbs to um, loss of habitat, injured by an automobile, pollution, things like that. The lots of things, you know, humans and wildlife are bumping up against each other all the time. And so wildlife rehabilitation has grown by leaps and bounds over the now, last 30 Joel, years. Now, before you go on there, have you ever heard in Oregon of wildlife images founded by uh, Dave Sidden, who had been in the movie industry for many years with wildlife and Move to the Southern Oregon Grants Pass area, and you can go to the website audience and Joel and look up wildlife images, and they do that too, Joel. Oh, they're they're uh, into wildlife rehabilitation. It's only two two miles. It's getting more and more common, for sure. It's so important. It's so important, and I remember you're going to laugh, but we'll go on because you're going to teach us so much. But one time, many years ago, we found a hawk, a baby hawk. And uh, we put it in a box, and we tried everything we could to figure out what to do to help that baby hawk. But we had to go to a school event that evening. 
So mm-hmm. I called, we called Dave up, Sidden, and said to Dave, he's only two miles down here with his wildlife refuge, and said, Dave, we've got to go to a school event. Could you come and get this little baby hawk because it seems to be injured? Da-da. And he said, okay. And I said, now, we're not going to be here, so just walk in the door and uh, go into the back of the house where this box is at. He said when he walked into the, into the house, Joel, the hawk had gotten better. It flew in the air, and it was hanging upside down on our curtain, curtain rod. <laughs> yeah, amazing, it's amazing how many stories are like that out there. I when you know. Talk to I bet rehabbers. you know many of them. And, you know, that's, Tell us that's about a your, common your uh, scenario. Your... Birds get into trouble all the time. Yeah. And one of the main things is they hit the glass. They don't perceive glass, and yeah. they get momentarily stunned. So yeah, tell it, us it about have, what that, you've been the doing. The baby hawk may have struck a window or something like that, and then yeah. all of a sudden came to, and you yeah. know, oftentimes okay. they're fine. It just depends. Now, tell us about what you've been doing, because I, you know, coming from Oregon, and I've had on my show the heads of Yellowstone National Park, national park systems all over our country. I've had uh, in, in rainforest sections of uh, our country of uh, when we talked about the elk and their gorgeous fur because of the moisture in the air and other uh, wild animals and, and habitats, all the way to the fish. But tell us about what you can teach us today, um, about what you've been learning. Well, the reason, um, again, you know, when I mentioned that I, I'm involved with wildlife rehabilitation, we have two missions here at, at SPCA Wildlife, and one is to treat injured wildlife, but the, mm-hmm. but the other one is to educate the public. And so I spent a large, I began to spend more and more time um, teaching people and answering questions, and I found that, you know, all people really needed was accurate information. And if once they had it, what started out to be a problem often wasn't even a problem anymore. So I decided after a number of years at the urging of my wife that I could either do it one at a time on a telephone or I could actually write a book. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was that's where the germ of the idea for the writing of Creature Comforts uh, became, uh, you know, came into being. Creature Comforts is a book that teaches people what's living in the backyard, why it's there, um, if it's exploiting them or, or uh, occupying our buildings or causing damage or scaring people, there are reasons why it's there. And the book teaches them how to deal with those problems by changing our behavior. And by changing our behavior in the environment, we often change the animal's behavior. Now, um, I, and I, I'm going to relate to some of mine, and I think anybody in the audience listening to this in time uh, will, and now will relate to what's living in their yard. We have here where I'm at, five minutes from the city of Grants Pass, we have eagles, we have osprey, we have uh, every type of species of major uh, ducks. Um, We have some rare ones. Uh, We then have this little foxes running around. We have uh, unbelievable things running around our yard uh, that you can imagine that we see out there when they think we're not looking. Now, when you say that I and others should understand the creatures and their comforts or who are out in your area and you're around in your location, what are you thinking, that we need to be more concerned about their life or and concerned about our safety and their life and what they well, might do to... Uh, we, should be, we should be concerned. We should educate ourselves as to why an animal's there. In other words, let me give you an example, a common scenario. Um, people um, complain 
about, say, gray squirrels in their backyard. Now, sometimes, oh, because everyone a... has agendas, no, it... sometimes the person that's feeding the birds just gets totally upset that, um, that their squirrels are raiding their bird feeder. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes if we change the way we feed the birds or okay. change when we feed the birds or how okay. we do it, we, uh, we reduce the amount of time, the amount of, um, you know, behavior of the squirrels. Sometimes okay. we cut the tree branches back around our house so we don't have them running over the roof. If we, uh, if we stop scattering food on the ground for other animals, we don't draw unwanted animals into the yard. There's okay. just a yeah, ton right. of like scenarios rats. like that, and it, it all has to do with the nature of the animals. There we go. There we go. Now, I need to tell you real quickly, uh, Joel, I love my gray squirrels. I mean, sure. they, they make buddies with us, but we have uh, all kinds of birds. And uh, But the gray squirrels are unbelievable, running all over the place. But you know, Joel, I'm so lucky because we have a lot of black walnut trees and hazelnut trees, and they're in oh, yeah. heaven over here. It's amazing. <laughs> in fact, during my radio no show, I have a canary like down below. People are going nuts about them. And it all has to do, most of the time, with our own personal agendas and how we exactly. view the natural world. People get uncomfortable when they have animals on their property that they don't understand and for whatever reason they don't feel they should be there and then all of a sudden we have conflict and i've well, been able now, to back help up a lot a of people with a yeah. lot of conflict just no, by giving the them really good information creature comforts gives information it gives techniques yeah. what to yeah. do when you see this animal what yeah. you know if you've got a raccoon in the shed how do yeah. we get the raccoon to leave yeah. along the way i decided to put in just stories of a lifetime of being outdoors and the reasons i put the stories in there were because it may underscore a problem or i just thought they were an interesting story that people would enjoy Right, well, we can relate to. Now, I'm thinking about a spot. Uh, my brother, Ron Cowan, lived in New Canaan, Connecticut for over 25 years, and he lived, his house was in the middle of five acres, uh, right in the community, right in the center of New Canaan, uh, near the town, and they were a ri- wildlife refuge, and they were not allowed. If the woodpecker came in and wanted to peck that tree down, the uh, short-tailed or the white-tailed short-tailed deer were coming all over, eating everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you name it. They had those animals. Oh yeah, the yard, refuges are just that. Refuges are set aside <laughs> for wildlife, and that's pretty much a kind of a restricted um, land usage program, which is vital as long as it doesn't get out of hand. We need refuges. We we need all kinds of of access points for people and wildlife. Um, I don't want to see the whole planet become a refuge because then it limits our access to the natural world. But certainly we need refuges for sure. Yes, we do. Now, when you're learning more about how people, especially let's say a person goes out for a hike, and uh, what do they need to be aware of that's out there to be respectful of the habitat of our wildlife? Well, I th- you know, that's a good question, and, it, and it's sort of broad in its scope in a way. But I, know, I think, but um, you know, the short answer would be if we're going to go out for a hike, we should probably try and familiarize ourselves with what species we're likely to run into. But, you know, but, but more importantly, realize that wildlife has no desire to harm us. Really, it doesn't really matter what we're talking about. It really has no desire to, to, it bears us no ill will. It doesn't have a destructive agenda. 
you know, it just wildlife merely is. It is part of creation, and we need to understand that it that we're existing on the oh, same planet with, with it. It's living with nature, yeah. Like if we wild. go out into the wild with yeah. that firmly in mind, I think we're going to have a, a you know much more of a positive experience than a negative experience. Okay, we have to m- go with our sponsor for a minute. Don't go anywhere, Joel. You we're going to listen to our sponsor, and then you come back and tell me and our uh, tell our audience what you think we should be learning that you have been learning. Sure. Uh, that's so important to the beauty of that wildlife and their nature to their lives, too. We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, the method applica- no eye drops, no saline solution, with just a mist, 100% all-natural tissue culture grade of water to mist your eyes because the environment is making them dry. Are you having eye trouble? Are you sitting at the computer? Do you have allergies coming? It's because the eyes are dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist. With just a miss. We'll listen to our sponsor and we'll be right back. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to Sharon Kleina Hour at Yahoo.com. That's Sharon Kleina Hour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Joel, on your, uh, some of the information I have here, I was just reading um, this one where I have a bunch of chipmunks around the outside of my house. In my opinion, there are chipmunks. Uh, there are no uh, around the house. That, uh, what is that? What does a chipmunk do when they are, have all those holes that they've created around the house? Chipmunks use um, a burrow system to store food and to raise young and to mm-hmm. escape from predators. Mm-hmm. And um, they can get. They're rather industrious, and when their numbers increase around a home and a flower bed and landscaping, it causes a certain amount of conflict with people. It's one of the animals that can be excluded by a physical barrier and usually I recommend um, what I what I recommend for a lot of type of barrier situations and that's a very very malleable easy to use material called hardware cloth and that that galvanized mesh can be bought uh, by the roll and cut to shape staked down underneath the mulch and covered with mulch it's it's virtually invisible and stops those animals from burrowing and that's just one technique that can be used mm-hmm. for a lot of those types of problems. Okay. And uh, then uh, what are some, you know, up in the New England area, and over in Connecticut I remember a lot of Lyme disease. Um, what is the Lyme disease contributed to? Uh, is it animals that affect that too, or is it just the insect? 
Well, Lyme disease is caused by um, a spirochete, a microorganism called uh, the Borrelia organism, Borrelia burgdorferi. It was first found in the mid-70s in Lyme, Connecticut. It's carried by some species. It was originally um, discovered to be carried by some individuals of, of the deer tick, um, mm-hmm. and, but it's since been cultured out of other insects. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can cause... It's easily treatable if it's caught early, but if it's if it's missed in its diagnosis in people and animals, it can become quite debilitating a disease. Right, right. We've heard stories. So, what does a person do? And you're in an area, but what if a person is going out into other parts of the United States and wanting to hike? Uh, are there parts of the United States that have more uh, uh, of this p- problem with the ticks uh, than other parts of the United States? Um, it is still relatively um, nowhere near as common out west and in the center uh, Midwest. It is growing in terms of uh, uh, of it being cultured and it's popping up in other areas of the country. It's much more prevalent on the east coast mm-hmm. and uh, in the particularly in the northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has spread over the last uh, 25, 30 years. But it is still relatively uncommon in the Midwest and prairie regions of North America. Mm-hmm. Although once in a while they'll get a, you know, a, a report to oh, be sure. aware of it. Oh, insects, you know, they hitch rides. You know, people they travel, do. animals travel these days. It's, it's the way the world is. And so, you know, whereas uh, generations ago things tended to be relatively localized for, for decades, nowadays disease has, diseases find a way to spread. It's just the nature of things. Yeah, and I'm not going to, if you, if I ever ask a question and you don't want to go that direction, you could add something later on your website. But I've, I've been studying dehydration diseases for way before they became popular to be studied. Uh-huh. And my concern with the dehydration of the, the earth is having its crisis uh, with water and the animals, the wildlife uh, is going to be affected, has been affected, because they're going to become just as dehydrated as human life has. Uh, what are some of the diseases that people need to be aware of? Because on this one chapter you have in your book, I guess it's chapter 27, that discusses diseases that are transmitted between animals and people. What, what, do, what do you mean by that? You want to reference that for me? Well, yeah, the um, the chapter is what's called zoonotic disease. A zoonotic disease is a disease that is that passes routinely from animals to people. There are diseases, um, zoonotic diseases, that everyone knows. You know, the one of the most famous is uh, is rabies. Um, the good news about that is it's a very difficult disease to get, but uh, uh, but very almost always fatal if left undiagnosed. But there are a host of other diseases that are you know termed zoonotic because they they come zoonotic? from they pass so from are... animals to people. These range from viral like rabies to um, parasitical diseases like ringworm and things like that, which isn't mm-hmm. really a a worm but a fungus. But right. then, uh, you know, we're also susceptible to certain uh, intestinal parasites that can, um, you know, at least temporarily inhabit our bodies that we can get from uh, from other animals. Uh, a, a good example would be the roundworm. You know, kids are, have been susceptible to roundworm 
uh, from puppies and dogs for, for since there's been people and dogs living together. Fortunately, they cause a little disease if they're caught, you know, at a reasonable amount of time. But I, I put that chapter together not to frighten people, but again, you know, to, to, to keep with the theme of the book about really good sound education about the natural world. And so mm-hmm. I want creature comforts to be entertaining, but I also want it to be a reference material so that oh, if people education. have a problem, they can pick it up off the shelf, reference the disease mm-hmm. or any other chapter about a specific animal. You know, the first thing that came to my mind, and, and again, if you don't want to go there with me, uh, we'll go on beyond it, but when you were talking about the relationship that human life has with animals, can you imagine over in India where the animals are all over the place? I mean, all over the place. You go into yeah, these cities um, I, and those, you cannot there are escape Certainly them. those types of third world countries where there aren't any... Um, you know, what we call, you know, perhaps um, sociological and economic barriers between people and disease. You know, here in North America, we have a barrier um, between uh, humans and, say, rabies because um, uh, we require animals to be vaccinated by law. Mm-hmm. You know, over in the, you know, that's uh, people, uh, you don't realize until you travel globally that that's n- not really a universal concept right. on planet Earth. You know, you get to India or something like that, there are no barriers. Diseases like rabies are like incredibly common in parts of Africa, well, Asia, India, things yeah. like that, along yeah. with, um, you know, lots of other diseases because right. those socioeconomic barriers that we put in place here in North America and that we enjoy, they don't exist in other parts of the world. Now, with your background, with what you've studied and what you've been learning for so long, I'm going to ask you a very, it sounds almost like a no-brainer answer, but why is it that a country that is prospering along the way here now, like India, has not removed all those animals from those big cities that people are going into from all over the world, their own people living every single day that I know for it must be causing a lot of disease? You know, that's a good question, and, you know, if we were to stay on the subject of India as our example, um, you know, a lot of it is cultural. And I think, actually, um, come to think of it, I bet you we could pick other examples. I know I can, that um, there are cultural barriers that exist between uh, people and their attitudes toward animals. You know, India, animals figure um, very prominently in uh, in various religions in India, and I think that that has a lot to do with it. Um, we could uh, to, not to switch gears, but you could go to Latin America and the Caribbean, where um, a lot of um, Catholic ancestry Latin cultures really have a problem with the neutering of animals, and so animal populations are crazy over there because they they have a problem you know, dealing with animals the way we do in North America in terms of population and things like that. So I think no matter where you go, when we have problems like that, a lot of them are culturally driven. Good, good. That was a good answer. I really uh, followed that um, uh, because my concern is the disease and all the, of course, we have poverty in India on top of that around the world, but then you get uh, people that cannot have, do not have proper water. They don't have water and they don't have any sanitation, and then all of a sudden they're subjected to all that future uh, problems of diseases. Yeah, and ironically, here in North America, we don't have the same types of problems, but we go out of our way to create more problems. Well, we, you know, know, what is the... It's amazing, for example... (laughs) we're only human, right? we're only human, you betcha. People need to stop feeding wildlife. They need to stop it. 
Um, feeding the birds is one thing, but providing all types of inappropriate food in inappropriate areas in this day and age is bad for people and bad for the animals. And that's right. that's one of the number one um, obstacles that we that's, have right now toward really living in then. harmony with wildlife is yeah. the inappropriate feeding of them. You know, let's really discuss that because you know all over the world that's been a hobby. When a person wants to throw a bread uh, meals uh, from the balcony or from wherever uh, to feed the animals. And tell us about why you think that is not a good idea. Oh, well, well you're, you're telling me it's almost quick. like it's a cr- tragedy. Um, feeding animals, what it does is, first of all, it, uh, people tend to feed a target animal because of our individual agendas. We love deer, so we scatter food for deer. Well, it draws raccoons at nighttime or mm-hmm. skunks. Mm-hmm. Or, or or pest birds in large flocks like starlings, mm-hmm. and when we so not only do we immediately create a nuisance by artificially concentrating animals, mm-hmm. what happens is if we artificially concentrate animals, we we exponentially increase the incidence for disease, because nature would not have those animals there. Mm-hmm. Now we also um, we put the animals in jeopardy for, in an immediate sense for say white-tailed deer by compelling them to cross highways to come to our artificial food. We also distract these animals from their natural foraging behaviors. And most often than not, we're giving them foods that they have no business eating. Bread is barely good for people. White bread is just no good for people, let alone animals. And <laughs> good for you. birds in particular can in no way access any yeah. nutrition yeah. from bread. Mm-hmm. And yet, we here in this day and age, we're still scattering you know, huge amounts of it all over the landscape. Yeah. Well, the one thing I learned the hard way, way back in time, is when I even was feeding the birds with a, a something, uh, it was even high up, but anything that the birds would scatter on the ground was bringing in a lot of rats. Absolutely. Rodents are the first things yeah. that show up. Yeah to uh, bread and seed in urban environments. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times health departments take a dim view of it. You know, um, we're living in an age now where um, rodents are doing really well. (laughs) Landfills are under pressure. Um, Waste disposal is, um, the cost of waste disposal is really, really high. Mm -hmm. And no one likes to call for a dumpster when they need one. They Mm -hmm. usually call for a dumpster pickup way after they need one. Mm -hmm. And so rodents... um, Life is good for rodents in urban areas, and we just exacerbate those types of problems by feeding wildlife. You know, people think when they see wildlife outside and it's walking around or it's standing around or it's flying around, just because we don't see it eat something, we assume there's no food. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's like when we pick up an injured animal, too. People mm-hmm. constantly bring me injured wildlife in boxes with all types of inappropriate food. I call it the chicken soup mentality. Okay. We're going to fix the problem with food. Sharon, if you and I were in a car accident, the the ambulance paramedics wouldn't pick us up and take us to McDonald's. No. Take well, we're out hospital. of time, and I love that finish. <laughs> <laughs> You are good. Joel, keep up that work because our wildlife is as important to us as our human life. And you've now taken a, a, a outreach to get a better education. And if you ever decide you want some other education for us, give us a call and we'll do this again. You betcha. Love and I want the audience to know time. about your book, Creative Comforts. Uh, and Joel is J-O-E-L, Thomas. 
T-H-O-M-A-S. His book sounds like it's exciting, and it could make a very good gift, a gift to give someone. Absolutely. Well, you have a nice day, Joel. You too. Take stay, care. Stay warm and be well. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Hmm. Our wildlife are as important to you and I as all the human life. And remember, I, I've often told many of you I have a thing about animals. Have you ever waved to one to watch their expression? They want to look at you. Do I know that person? They're important. They're alive. They're part of us. We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, without an eye drop. You don't have to have an eye drop. Uh, no saline solution to burn or blur. It's just a mist, all natural to supplement the eyes because the eyes get dry with the environment. We'll listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Dwayne Cecil. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Dwayne, are you with us? I'm here. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you're thank up you. in, uh, Dwayne Cecil, by the way, audience, is a Ph.D., and, Dwayne, your background has been with NASA, U.S. Geological Survey, but now you're with uh, the Western Region Climate Services as a director studying um, what is happening with our climate and water issues on this planet. And today you're live from Seattle at an annual American Meteorologist Society conference. That's uh, correct, yeah. What are, we, what are you doing there? What's happening? Well, there's, there's a, as you might guess, there's, there's an awful lot going on right now with trying to establish a, a, a national climate services, much like the National Weather Service. And I, I now work with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and, and we're here interacting with many of our stakeholders from across the country. This is the, the AMS, American Meteorological Society's annual meeting. Mm -hmm. And we have two town hall meetings here this week to to describe to our stakeholders and interested interested parties what it is we're trying to do with the climate services on a regional scale. And really the theme of this conference this year is is how do we build weather-wise communities and 
uh, and resilient communities and, and protect our water resources and, and how do we do that long term with climate variability and change? How do we, how do we work together to, to do the research that's necessary, build the capacity to understand the changes that are going on around us and, and build then into our adaptive plans on, on the urban level, the county level, the state and regional level, and the national level build into our, our plans for the next five to ten years of how we're going to respond to the many changes going on around us, including climate variability. You know, the United States has always been, I believe, and you can correct me, a leader in this research forever. And this can also begin to study other, play, other locations on the planet to help them also. That's correct. And, and what we're trying to do is really understand in a better way on a regional scale. And, and as you pointed out at the beginning of the program here, I'm, I'm the Western Region Climate Services Director, and that, that, that area covers from Montana to Arizona mm-hmm. and Washington to California, the eight large western states. Mm-hmm. And as, as I pointed out in the last show that we had a chance to talk, Sharon, the, the three top priorities as I see them for the, the western region are Water, water, and water. You know, and a lot of people around the world would look at the Western region and think, oh, my gosh, they've got lots of water. And they don't realize don't that there, is, there has not been enough research. And um, people have got to become participants uh, along with you to assist this, uh, hu- this enormous future of long-term, forever-lasting, for the planet to be here forever, that the water issue is number one. It's number two, and it's number three. There's nothing more important Dwayne, yeah, um, I was more. so excited when we hung up last time and you said that. I have a, a side of me goes, yay! <laughs> <laughs> and as we, you study, now that's the other thing that you just said just now, the other uh, important life issue, is we have to learn, thanks to you uh, and what we're trying to do, is to learn to live with the earth. The earth is not going to learn to live with us. We're here to learn how to live with earth. And no, you're, learn, you're, t- you're going to be teaching us how we on this earth can learn to live on earth. And for generations and generations and thousands of years to come, bring the word eternity back into our vocabulary about what we want to do for earth to become a better place to live by learning to live with the earth and not tr- try to change the earth's nature. We're going to learn to live with an earth's nature with us, Right. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, especially in, in the western United States, one of the things that I've, I've, I've had a, a really rich 30-year career now with, with academic institutions and, and several different federal agencies, and, and I'm still learning. And one of the things that, that I'm finding extremely exciting in this new climate services position is, is working with our, our, the, the, the American Native tribal members of our community in the West, and, and they really look at this in a more holistic and a complete way, and we're, we can learn a lot from, from the, the, the tribal entities in the West on, on how to approach nature and water resource allocation and, and energy resource production, and, and we all have to start working together, and as our population and our demographics change, and they're changing rapidly in the Western United States, 
how do we better respond to that together? And, and there's opportunity, I think, for all of us to learn. And, and one thing that I think that we we haven't done enough of is, is concentrate on how are we training the next generation of climate and generations research and, generations. and applications. You know, Cecil, uh, Dwayne, I mean, Dwayne, what you just said was a magic in research to me. I've been in research for well over 30 years, and I've always said to my research team, don't go into anything with an opinion. Don't go into anything as if you know anything. Always go into studying as if you have way so much to learn, and you never could learn enough, but you're, t- you're going out almost like an algorithm that we've learned since the Internet, but you're going out with an algorithm of a team that will keep joining team players. It's kind of like a social media approach, but you're going out and bringing in team players that have a background that understand the nature of our earth from way so far back. The Native American Indians that you mentioned to our, in our country have more knowledge and relationship with the nature and their faith in the planet earth, and then we have so much to learn from them. You were correct. We've got to turn to these uh, Native American Indians, the tribes, and learn from what they learned from their ancestors. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I see in, in interacting with, with the Native American tribal scientists and resource managers is that, you know, one of the things that we, that we need to do, even though there's some urgency in, in how we're going to respond to all the perturbations and impacts on, on our water resources, whether it's climate variability and change or it's urban sprawl or it's invasive species or whatever whatever the driver is that's impacting our water resources. One of the things that I've learned from from tribal colleagues is, you know, slow down a little bit. Don't be so quick to make decisions and, and to implement plans. Hmm. I mean to a point, I, I think that, you know, they have a they have a good approach in that let's let's look at as many options as we can and then let's make a decision together as a community and then and then move forward with whatever that decision is and, and have the wherewithal that, that if we see that something that we've decided to do isn't necessarily the best thing or isn't working the way we thought, then you know, let's have the wherewithal to, to change our plans and adapt and and adapt to our environment. Well you just mentioned something that I followed you with um um, I've, I, I'm the founder of Save a Child's Life Foundation many, many years ago, and I brought in um, a, 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 one of the tribes to come in, Native American Indians, to put on a powwow, and uh, they entertained. Uh, it was just unbelievable what they, could, what they did. Well, anyway, when I look back at what they're doing is when they're trying to live with the rhythm of Earth. Now, you can correct me and what you just said. Slow down. Take a listen. What can you hear? Is Earth coming back to say something? Stop and consider the rhythm of what is happening. If you walk too fast or you don't want to listen, you will not listen to what Earth is trying to tell you. And that is so important with uh, our life with the waters. And, and, you know, have you ever noticed, we all noticed, that uh, the magic of water being the life, it's the river of life, it's the everything of life. Without water, there is no life. And by I've been studying dehydration disease before it became fashionable to say, <laughs> and disease, because the earth is in a crisis of, we I'm left the water behind, Dwayne. You're bringing it to focus again, thanks to all of you. 
So what oh, what are you, you learning about this? I get so frustrated with buzzwords, but what is happening to what we're wanting to learn with the Earth's climate change? Uh, did I say the correct words this time? The change of the Earth's climate. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, one of the things that, that we're finding is that these predictions of century-long changes that, that the global climate research community has, has really concentrated on, and I think rightfully so, for, for a couple of decades now. What we're finding is as demographics and populations change dramatically, and, you know, we're headed to a world population of, of 9 billion souls by, by, I think, the projection now is 2035. And, and as, we, as we learn more about what the needs are, they're more immediate. We're, we, we really are starting to change the focus of the climate research and applications to seasonal one or two seasonal forecasts and, and decisions that have to be made in the next two to three to five years. And uh, so we really are, are responding to stakeholder needs and the users of the data and redesigning the research to, to try to respond to what is what are the what are the climate and variability change signals that we're going to see in the next two, three, five years? And especially now we're focusing on extreme events because decision makers and resource managers, whether they're federal government, state and local, um, urban planners, uh, tribal managers, no matter who they are, we get the same requests. You know, what are going to be the extreme events, whether it's drought or flood? which are bookends, obviously, of, of water events. There we go. Whatever the extreme events are, what are they going to be in the next two, three, five years, and how confident are you that we might see that kind of an extreme event so that we can plan our water resource allocations and management and availability over the next five years rather than 100 years from now, you know, it's, we're not Well, to we're me, really uh, Dwayne, that 2035 sounds like a magic very, very important time. You know, we have been told in research and science in 2035, there are going to be over 35 million people that are going to be blind in our country and the world. And blindness is every four seconds now. And the air is going too dry. Um, and of course, I've always said that the indoor conditions, because of insulation, forced air heating and cooling, have made it really impossible for moisture in the air to breathe, for life to live indoors. But you go outside and you, the mire looking at what you're doing at this water issue is if you don't have enough fresh water on the surface of the earth, there is not enough fluid in the air, moisture, humidity in the air for life to survive and fight disease. That's right. That's why we have so much dehydration diseases. And, And by the way, I have every week... Uh, we grew in the world of 1,449,658 people. We now have in the new world 6,895,657,727 people. Uh, in the next three, four weeks, we're going to be up to 7 billion people. Yep, exactly. Now, we just found out and, uh, that China has a tremendous amount of influence on what is going on over there around the world because of the pollution and problems. Uh, is there any, um, and I don't want to go someplace where you don't want to go yet, but 
do, do other parts of the world have an effect on what you're trying to do over here also? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the adaptation to climate variability and change and our response to climate variability and change is local and should be local, and, and those plans should be developed with with as much local input as we can. But they're influenced by global mm-hmm. changes and global drivers. So we must take that into account even when we're, we're building our, our regional adaptation plans. And, mm-hmm. and something you just mentioned about what's happening with population and demographics and how rapidly it's changing, that was really brought home to me a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking with the uh, director of the Salt Lake City Public Utilities. And he and his staff had commissioned uh, the state climatologists in Utah at Utah State University to do some climate projections on what was going to happen to the snowpack in the Wasatch Range, which is really the, the main water supply for the city of Salt Lake, by the year 2035. And they're projecting that up to as much as a 36% permanent reduction in the snowpack by 2035. So, of course, I asked the city utilities director and his staff, well, what about, have you looked at population projections for the same period? The answer was double. The population in the Salt Lake Valley is going to double by 2035. The water resources, the the source of the water resource for the, the Salt Lake Valley in the Wasatch Mountains is going to reduce by up to a third over that same period of time. We have to start planning for that now, and somehow we have to bring that kind of information to our politicians and our decision makers who, when we bring that information forward, the reaction we get is, oh, we've got plenty of snowpack now. I'm, you know, I'm not worried about it. They're in there for two, four, six years, and they're not worried about 2025. Well, I, you know, we're out of we have time. to bring it forward. Yeah, we're out of time, and I want to thank you for taking time at uh, the conference to meet with us again, and I know we're going to be doing this more commonly, getting together. We ought to start something with a goal of we're going to be ready way before 2035. Let's do it. Absolutely. Let's do it. And people like yourselves in that conference, uh, we ought to look at this country as the leader of the world to help this planet learn to live with the nature of our symptoms and not take it for granted and the water is going to be there in the in the air or on the ground forever. Well, Dwayne, thank you. Oh, thank you, Sharon, for what you're doing. I appreciate the time. Well, we appreciate you, and we'll talk to you next. We're looking forward to next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, Dwayne uh, was at the live coming from Seattle at the annual American Meteorology Society conference, and to me with our background and the power of water, is so important for us to learn on our show and teach our, our audience throughout the world. Bring your friends in. Bring your family in. Let's Twitter 2035 and see who would come up with what is going to happen in 2035. Let's think about water, water, water issues and our planet. And the United States is a tremendous influence on the world and its health issues and what's concerning to the better, how to, to have a better life. We learned today from Joel Thomas about the nature of our wildlife, and that is so important about they have to have water and they have to have a healthy place to live. But we need to learn to live with our wildlife, and they're wild for a reason. 
Then we go over to learning more from Dwayne Cecil each time he comes on. PhDs, been with NASA, been with U.S. Geological Survey. Now he's the Western Region Climate Services Director, learning more about water. It is a, very important for us to have this planet be there for eternity. I had one of my scientists on as a guest saying, Sharon, I don't know if we're going to be able to use eternity. I want by 2035, we're going to say to the world, out there, all over the world, we're going to do this together. We live on this planet together. Earth has a secret. Embrace your life as you're embracing somebody else's life that you've probably never met. It's a very special time. We're going to learn. But Earth is whispering, never say goodbye, because that way you'll, be, you'll take that 2035 very serious. What is dry air? What is dry eyes? What is dry skin? What are diseases caused by dehydration diseases, lack of moisture, lack of water? I want to thank you for listening. You be well. Next time when we talk, I hope you'll join us. And let's go after success for 2035. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember to visit Sharon's website at SharonKleinaHour.com. 